It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Dive in. Hey, Chris. How's it going, Andrew? It's good. I know how you're doing because we just spent the last hour catching up catching over up. beers. Yeah, we haven't yeah. seen each other in a while. Yeah. And now we are here to record a much anticipated episode we've been talking about or threatening for um, months, if not years, maybe decades. Yeah. It's been a while. We're It's an Ask Us Anything. And uh, we put out the, the feelers to our rope guns, our lovely amazing rope guns and we asked them to just submit audio files to uh ask us questions and right. so have you listened to any of them Chris? i have not i have not listened to any I've, of them either one person we asked for audio files but one person sent us a uh, written one which we'll we may use as well we'll see if we get to that because yeah. I, I like the way he framed his question because he was self-conscious about his voice yeah which yeah. which i can understand because you know I'm sitting next to the voice of climbing, Chris Kaluz, <laughs> who constantly makes me feel inferior about my my, my vocal arrangements. That's all right. Well, I think hey, I, I think yeah. I'm going to be like the Terry Gross of climbing podcasts. <laughs> Wait, you are? <laughs> you know, not necessarily in substance, more just in like difficulty to listen to. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah, Terry. All right. So all we're going to do is we're going to play these things. We will hear them for the first time, and then uh, I guess we'll answer the question, I hope, unless it's just a litany of insults. Someone took the opportunity to, like, <laughs> fucking give us the, how's your father, and, like, <laughs> well, we'll play that, too. <laughs> and and if they did that... Um, well, hats off to you, sir, yeah. or, or ma'am. <laughs> but also, why are you uh, supporting us on Patreon <laughs> just for this one moment yeah. to slander us? I understand hate listening, but hate paying. <laughs> to listen you're like we're like your dominatrix <laughs> this is your, you're our sub <laughs> which is a whole nother patron patreon level that you guys don't know about by the way <laughs> yeah we should up the tier for that one all right do you want to dive in chris let's do it all right this is kind of making me nervous for some reason hey andrew and chris my name is eric from alberta and I'd really like to hear your weigh in on the current epidemic of pro climbers using fans at the crag, specifically someone hanging from a fixed line and holding a fan over their hands, such as uh, Dave Graham or Adam Andra. Um, I'm also curious to know if you think Adam would have performed better at the Olympics if he would have had the aid of a with him <laughs> that's right. an awesome question I have do you want to go no please I, I have, feel like this is your wheelhouse look I have utmost respect for Adam Andra okay you know clearly the best climber right now on whatever okay the, the his don wall ascent and it, i've said this publicly in some ways like kind of crushed tommy's and now he's he's also the greatest sport climber you know blah blah blah. dave graham wonderful guy we had him on the show i enjoyed the hell out of talking to him 
Um, I had no idea what he was like and, and, and left completely charmed. But the fan thing is bullshit. It's total <laughs> bullshit. Like, come on, you guys. Like, fuck. And, and, and to be honest with you, I think it's, a, it's a, like a short-lived fad. I, I, I just can't imagine that it's going to be one of those things that becomes like, like chalk, where the first guy to use chalk, everybody was like, that's stupid. And now we all use chalk. I don't think we're all going to be using fans. What about brushes? I mean, it seems more on the spectrum of like brushing holds than really. Yeah, it seems like the natu- the evolution of like the progression of climbing is just going to be fan based. I don't know about that, <laughs> but you know, and to 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 speak to his second half of his question, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he would have done. Maybe that's why he he didn't win is because he didn't have his fan with him <laughs> or his fan guy. And that's the other thing about it that's silly is that. You know what's is there's a video with him where there's a fan guy, right? That's like holding the fan, like a little fanboy. Yeah, fanboy <laughs> that like you know moves the fan. Yeah, no, I think it's super stupid. If you're from Alberta, sir, I'm sure that you agree with me because you you Albertans don't don't you know cotton to that sort of garbage up well, there the, either. So kinda, one of the problems with fans is that if you have to if it's so hot that you have to use a fan are so humid, you're just blowing hot, humid air onto your hands. Yeah. It just kind of seems like it's going to be worse. Yeah. I seems. Do you absurd. think that there's a potential for the opposite end of the spectrum where alpinists bring like Mr. Heaters up onto their roots so that <laughs> they can rock climb, like they can melt the ver glass and, your buddy, and free the pitch? Your Mr. Buddy Heater or <laughs> <Yeah>. whatever. <laughs> I would imagine it's a possibility. I mean, I mean, what, you, I would. What those guys that. were up to in that Helmkin Falls <laughs> cave thing, like, got pretty close to that. Remember, they had the the metal detector to try to find their oh, bolts yeah, and totally. stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, who knows where the progression of climbing is going to go after? You can't tell, but it, but it's, it's we can all agree it's going to be HVAC based. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next question. For the rest of this AMA and other titillating bonus material, like our deep analysis of the Iger sanction and its embarrassing, sexist, and maybe racist legacy, or the Celebrity Deathmatch app, or even today's guest John Long reading from his new book, Icarus Syndrome, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. We rely entirely on listener support to run the runout, and frankly, for our own self-worth. So don't let us down. John Long is arguably climbing's most prolific writer, with over 50 titles that have been translated into dozens of languages. He is an OG stone master and was notably part of the team that completed the first in a day ascent of the nose of El Cap. His new book is Icarus Syndrome from D'Angelo Publications. The high-end literary nonfiction milieu is mainly in academia, right? It doesn't mean that the people in academia or within that circle are doing the best work at all. But what they do is they have a fast track to the distribution of their stories into the New Yorker and all the rest of it. I mean, you read a lot of that stuff in the New Yorker, you go, that's, you know, it's like, it's not even up, not remotely up to speed, in my opinion. Some of it's great, you know, but there's a lot of stuff that's out there, even in Paris Review or you know, Vanity Fair or whatever, you're just like, mm-mm, doesn't even check half the boxes. Nevertheless, when I'm doing a podcast with people within that milieu, 
I'm highly suspect. Did you get? Did you pitch them the book idea in advance, or did you have the thing written and, and send it? And you were just looking for a publisher. Sequoia, who owns the company, she she came to me and goes, "Hey, do you have any stuff? The pandemic's just starting. Everybody's buying books. Wanted to read stuff. Do you have anything that we can do?" And I just by chance had been working on for over the previous year or so. I had worked up the stories that were in that book, and I said, "Yeah, but I'm going to have to go through a." an editing process because I've only just done a version myself and you know how important it is. They have three people there. One of which is one of the best editors I've ever worked with. Fantastic. How skilled he is. Okay. And that's awesome. We just dug in and really went, you know, I did a deep dive on those things. I mean, he was down to every transition, every word, every word in it, you know, I mean, we just, decluttered, you know, just kept looking at it closer and closer and closer. And that's really what, you know, basically what it takes to get something like that. That, And that was my first experience of doing, doing it that extensively, doing that much of a, you know, a micro sort of, you know, I mean, nowadays, especially if you're, if you're doing anything that's on the internet, there's no time. You got to make a dollar. You got to do this. You know, you, you, you do what you can do within a short window. You don't work up a story and do 80 drafts on it over a six-month period. You know, with somebody looking at every little minutia along the way and thinking about it for a week before you do anything about it. I mean, most people don't have the the freedom or even the opportunity to begin to do that. But that's what's really necessary, at least for, in my case. When I was a kid, I used to read about Borges working on a story for 30 years. So, you know, it's not really that much different. It's just I hadn't done it. So I want to talk about the book's namesake chapter, Icarus Syndrome. And uh, this chapter is about Quinn Brett's 100-foot fall on the nose and subsequent paralyzation. And man, that chapter is like walking through a uh, <laughs> through a chapter full of ghosts in some way. And, and at least, you know, there's certainly a fair number of dead people, but also people who've know, aren't their former selves in one way or the other. And, um, you know, that's kind of a theme in the book. And obviously it's a theme because it's the title of the book, but you're just the perfect person to have written about Quinn's fall, you know, given that you, you know, you kind of pioneered the the speed climbing of El Cap in a way, being the one of the first people to climb the nose in a day. And so I just thought that was such an interesting chapter. And I just love to hear you just dish on uh, what what Icarus syndrome means and and what this theme is that you're getting at in, in different ways throughout this book. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with living long enough to see initially, you know, you get all charged up over something. If you have a certain kind of mindset that likes or is attracted to flying close to the sun in whatever way you do it, meaning you're you find it invigorating to do risky stuff that requires full presence and a, you know, big performance. That's a little, you know, like war and like a whole bunch of other stuff that, that particular Avenue doing that, taking risk, physical risk, you know, dealing with the mental strain of it, you know, all of that, that, that is something that's particularly suited for people in their twenties. You know, you got all your faculties, you have, you know, physicality is not going to get any better. 
you have a lot of drive, there's motivation, you have dreams, you have all that other stuff. And then as you get a little bit older and some of the initial sort of gusto melts away, you have other priorities, basically. And so, you know, you can look back on those times where, I mean, I look back on all that stuff I didn't, basically, most of it in my 20s. And there's a lot of, like you, like Andrew said, there's a lot of ghosts there because a lot of people died doing it. And from the, from, from a distance, you know, of 40 years or whatever, you know, you can look back and, and it doesn't, it looks completely different than when you're in it, you know? And the thing about Quinn was her situation was she was embedded right in the middle of it. And then something happened, untoward happened, takes a hundred foot ripper, gets paralyzed from the belly button down. And all of a sudden she has a vantage point and the rest of us do by proxy of seeing from a distance, you know, what the cost of all that stuff is. And at the same time, you have the paradoxical thing of, do I regret doing all any of that stuff? If I could go back in time and do it again? Yeah, I would. So that's a conflict that I could sort of never live without. And still is still alive in me in, in, in a certain way. That is, I know damn well this is dangerous. I had a lot of people, friends that have died doing it. And yet those doing that stuff provided some of the most intense alive moments of my life. And do I wish I'd never had those moments? No, of course not. But at the same time, does it is it entirely sane by any kind of rational or objective you know, appraisal, does it even make sense? No, it doesn't. The fact is there's no there's no easy solution to that. You can come up with all kinds of mottos and slogans and you know, you can explain it away a bunch of different ways and be philosophical and, you know, whatever, but you're still left with that with that dichotomy of those two things. I could get killed doing this, but it feels fantastic and it sets my life on fire in ways you know, otherwise I would, I have experiences that I otherwise would never, I could never actually have imagined. So what's the trade-off? Well, I might die, I, you know, and you just sort of ping pong back and forth between those two things. That's really the game. So are you expecting to have, have a comprehensive evaluation that'll check out as a proposition that you can prove? No. It defies all that stuff, and that's part of the charm of it. And and it's you know it'll flummox everybody. You know it's maddening in one way, and you know what do you say? I mean, our, my dad was a doctor, and my family came from they were that kind of professional people like that. And they looked at early on, looked at me doing what I was doing, and it's like what, what, what are you up to? Explain this to me. Well, good luck with that. You know, and Ickerson was probably as good a job as I could do. To explain it, I, it wasn't an excuse for it. it. Was just these are the experiences, and as raw as I can remember, this is how the people respond to that stuff. And half of them died, and half of them didn't. Yeah, you know, it's an open-ended thing. Like a lot of things in life, there isn't any pat solution. There's no easy way to to describe it, but it is dramatic. It's a difficult thing to even talk intelligently about it, too. You know, you're you're talking about this whole thing flummoxing people or or whatnot, or you know, why why would you do these things? And yet, within mythology, and I think even within modern mythology, you know, we definitely, as a society, we admire the risk takers, the changers, the people who 
you know, go out and, and do these things. So it's, it's kind of this, I've always found it to be this weird dichotomy where people both think like, oh, they're so stupid. And yet, you know, whether it's films or art or, you know, even moving society forward, the risk takers are our heroes. And within mythology, that's always been the case, you know? Um, and, and so that I, I kind of related to this idea of, you know, going back that far for your title, uh, because it does sort of put the jumper cables on something that, um, you know, we all kind of hold sacred in our society and in, in mythology. Yeah. I, what I tried to do was in that one, I didn't have to try to do it. I just reported on the fact that, yeah, that's true. I bought into that lock, stock and barrel when I was doing it. But at the same time, I was, you know, up close to Quinn, stayed in my room. I had to lift her out of her wheelchair and put her on the bed, you know, and that's a woman that mere months before was, you know, flashing Patagonia peaks. And here she is shitting into a bag and wondering whether anybody's going to love her again. You know, I mean, that, that's a, that's a real gut check on that stuff. You know, that's not an idea. You're personally engaged with somebody who represents the fallout of that. Maybe even in some sense, sense more challenging than dying because you got to live with it, you know, the rest of her life. And so does everybody else in, in a way. So it's, that's not an easy, it's not an easy subject to do. And I did everything I could do artistically to leave it as raw and open as I, as I could without trying to draw, without trying to sound, sound philosophical or wise or knowing what I was talking about. You know, it's a, it's a mystery in a way. So, you know, like a lot of living. So I didn't try, I, I made no attempt to try to solve it. Uh, one of the things that I'm interested by Largo is um, just how this theme maybe relates to you personally, you know, because you've done a lot of living and you've had some, uh, you know, f- flown too close to the sun in various capacities. Um, you, you know, you recently wrote a thing for, um, climbing magazine about your, your overcoming alcoholism and, you know, you've, you've, uh, had your wings scorched to, so to speak. And, um, here you are doing your, what I consider to be some of your best creative work. And so, you know, it's that, that thing of, you know, you want to fly close to the sun, but not so close that you don't get to fly again. Uh, so there's some balance there. There is some wisdom there that can be gleaned from, from, uh, these experiences. I'd love to just hear what, what this process was like, you know, put, put this book into context of your, your personal, your own personal Icarus syndrome, if you will. The, the, tr- what makes the thing tricky is nobody really knows what, what the distance is in terms of how close you can go. And so if you're a person that tends to overdo things like I do, you're going to, you're going to err on the side of too hot and you're going to get burned. If you do that, it's just a matter of, is this going to be first, second or third degree, or you're just going to burn up. And, you know, I, I probably got close to the middle of the second degree burn stage. You know, I busted, blew up my leg. I broke my back twice you know, got sidetracked into alcoholism and drugs for a while, you know, acted like a complete jackass in every which way, you know, so anything, look, basically anything 
somebody could use or do in an exaggerated way. Some people that are prone to excess, right? And that's me. Those are the those are the people that need that tend to be Icarus in a way. And those are the ones that need to know, you know, going in that you better watch just how how close you want to go because there there is a line that you might not see coming that one step over and there's no coming back. And if you see it over and over and over, I mean, how many people have we both known all, or all three of us known that you know, are not here anymore simply because they went over that line? And how many of them saw it coming? You know, it was always, it was like that, like those infantry or infantry people, you know, charging how many beachheads over how many wars over how many centuries, you know, the, the bolt that there's no bullet with their name on it until there is. So, you know, that's given that my system is sort of built towards the successive end of things. Um, it took, it took me a, in reference to the work, it took me a, a long time to realize that actually if I wanted to grow artistically, I was going to have to back the exaggerated aspect and the excess aspect of the writing completely back and try to look for subtleties that I never even imagined that were at play in my life and in my work. So once, once I understood that I had to look at female writers actually quite a bit Two in particular, uh, Lucia Berlin and Eve Babbitts. Both of the, those two in particular got me thinking in a different way. And once I once my mind was sort of working in that direction, then it was possible for me to do stories like that were in the in the present book. I think that absolutely comes clear or comes through in in the writing, and I, I think that's what I've been trying to get you to to admit fess up to is is the the restraint that you show in the prose is really what makes the prose so powerful. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think it's a, uh, like I said, I think it's your best work yet. So. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that because ultimately those books are written for people like, you know, you and Chris, my peers. And to add something to, to my answer or attempted answer to your question, Andrew, at some point, along the line on the successive thing, you have to look around and ask, well, what's actually true? Not what I think is going to make the best story or what's going to be the most exciting thing or whatever, but on a human level, what's actually the most, the truest thing I can say about this stuff, right? And in reference to that one story, the Icarus Icar syndrome about Quinn Brett and speed climbing and all, you know, all the other people that have gone in that direction, the truest stuff, at least for me personally, has nothing to do with climbing. It's like, what were the human elements involved? And that doesn't really have anything to do with excesses. You know, it was, it's hard to say what that has to do with. I mean, it's very hard to put any of that stuff into words I found. You know, I mean, at, at some level, dealing with that story, that was a really tricky story to, to write. And all, you know, a lot of this stuff... I go into writing these stories, and I've been at this a long time. I've done 50 books. I won a National Book Award, all that other stuff. And yet, when I sit down to write a story, at some point in each one of them, 
it feels like I don't know a fucking thing. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And it took me the longest time to realize that that is actually a good sign because the, then the writing process becomes a process of trying to figure out what I'm doing. In other words, what's true here? What matters? All of those things. If I go into it knowing what, what that is, I'm just going to repeat myself and use a bunch of you know standard tropes or reasoning or whatever. If I get in there and get lost, the only way to find my way through it is to stick with what is the truest thing that I can think of because there isn't any el- anything else to go on. And if I stick with that, I end up with what happened in that book. And that, that's a sort of a new experience to me. And a big part of that was working with a certain editor who knew that and, and kept putting me, putting that question to me. And, you know, that, so I, I got a Cody, you know, I worked with on that book was, was really instrumental in getting me to, I needed a little shove in that direction because I, I felt a little uncertain about, you know, whether these things were going to work or not, because it didn't have, it didn't have the, it didn't have any of the, most, most of these stories had none of the fireworks I was used to employing as a device. So I lift that out. It's like, well, what, what am I doing here? Right. You know, I look forward to trying more along these lines. I will. And there's really no going back once you get to this point. At least it seems like it. I mean, going back to try to, you know, try to do just hyperbolic adventure stories. I, I have no interest in doing that right now. Zero. When this editing process was happening, you know, and you're sort of in this new territory, if you will, and you've been writing a long time and you have a reputation and were you very open to this? Were, were you immediately like, okay, this guy's telling me what to do. Speaking of that maturity thing, were compared to say 20 years ago or something like that. Well, I wouldn't have been able to relate to what he was asking me 20 years ago. See, that's the thing I had to, right. I, I couldn't have done sure. it beforehand because as I, as I said earlier, I wasn't mature enough. And I, I, my head just wasn't in that place where I could, where I could get my head around why, what, what the value of even trying that was. I was too dislocated and too remote for myself to know, one, to be able to access any of that stuff, and two to, two, to have any appreciation for why I would want to do that in the first place. So he, he wasn't telling me what, what to do. He was simply asking questions, which led me to that. You know, as I said, I'm a slow learner. Most other people that have been successful with writing don't have to be told that, but I, I'm just one of those ones that had to be mentored into that, you know, out of this point A over to point B. And he did it real gracefully. And, you know, I, it, 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 it was fantastic and exhilarating just to even try to do that. At, at some level, it's sort of confusing to believe that this, that anybody would be interested in a childhood high school story of mine where I met a woman in a donut shop that had a tattoo on her forearm that signified that she'd been in Auschwitz. I mean, it's sort of a curiosity, but what would make that, you know, as, but as it turned out, that's one of the stories that I keep hearing more and more about just these little encounter, human, very human encounters that people come across in their life. And that, that's why a lot of, good writers have said over the years, everybody has a ton of stories if they just knew the, knew the right ones to tell. Because everybody's had those in kind, of, kind of encounters. They just haven't had either the education or they don't have the knack or they haven't put the time in to be able to frame them in ways that the, 
that that the public at large would appreciate as a as a story, as a piece of literature or whatever. That makes sense. I'm not sure I'm making any sense here. Well, and it's it's interesting to me because there's two parts in my head too. Is you know the skill to be able to write it, to be able to frame it, as you just said, but also just and and this is a sensitivity issue. I think so artists are just sensitive to to looking in the world and recognizing when something is you know, a story or is a, a a work of art. And, and I think that to me, you know, when you, you get into sort of like what makes an artist and what makes art, which is a whole, you know, crazy black hole to jump into. But that's one of the things is that I look at things, you know, and then someone who's an artist comes and looks at the same things and, and recognizes what the significance is with me. Like you just said, ha, you know, what encounter means what and, and how do you frame it? So the sensitivity to recognize that, even if, even if you're going back to it, you know, 30 years later is, I think, a real skill or if it's just innate or something like that. But it's a real differentiator for me, not being able to draw the thing, but not necessarily, but knowing to draw it, if you will. It's a strange rubric that you, that you use to try to figure out what stories you're going to write. because two things come to mind. One is what I'd said earlier, the stories that, that when I teach this stuff and in my own writing, the stories that I choose to write are those that when I think about it, something I snap up in my chair. It's like, Oh shoot. I still remember that. Right. And that was a, that was an encounter that I'm not going to forget because it, it was internally engaging or embarrassing or, you know, whatever it may be, it has a charge to it. Right. It lights me up in some way. Those are the ones you choose to tell, and that's the reason you tell them. See, that's that's the part that takes the faith, because no great comic tells a joke in the hopes that other people are going to like it or find it funny. They tell it because they think it's funny. So if this thing was meaningful to me, and I'm going to write it actually trying to sort through it to try to figure out what that meaning is to me, then you have a really good shot, uh, shot of it meaning something to somebody else. If you're if if you've done a good enough enough job of exploring why it was meaningful to you, it's a it's a it's a bizarre kind of hall of mirrors that you get into, but you really have to have to go into the thing. And it's my understanding and my experience that you have to go into the thing, trying to make it meaningful just to yourself. And and if you do that, then you you probably be honest to the degree that everybody else will look at it and go, I can relate to that. I've had an experience that not that one, but something similar. And I can relate to it because it's clearly and honestly stated. So, I mean, nobody's, nobody's experience is so different that we can't find some kind of analog on our own. And that's really what you're doing, you know, with all of this stuff. You're humanizing it or attempting to. And once again, this isn't, you know, 10 years ago, I wouldn't be talking like this at all. I didn't. I didn't have the wherewithal to even relate to it in that, in that way. It doesn't make me smart or wise. It's just different. Well, in terms of like put, trying to put meaning into your stories, I think that's all. Yeah, you're right. That's like a back to the mythology, like a Sisyphean task. I mean, the meaning, cause I, I was just thinking about how I've, I've read a lot of these stories, at least, you know, the ones that did have the adventure elements in them, um, including the final story. Is it Carl? How do you pronounce his last name? Carl Bonish? Banish. Final story with Carl Banish, you know, I, I read a lot of these stories as with warnings in them, right? With, again, back to this Icarus syndrome thing. While, while I think 
you know, that's partially my age that I'm bringing to it and, and thinking back to sort of what I was doing to, to put myself in danger again back in my 20s. But that's just my perspective. And I don't think that the warnings were something that you were, you know, being didactic about necessarily, but they're sort of the, the thing I took from the story, not necessarily the thing you necessarily put in there. So just back to this idea that, you know, uh, leaving the subtleties in there for people to interpret because everybody's going to bring something else uh, to their reading of a story. Um, and I personally don't like very didactic, this is the point kind of stories. God, God knows what makes stories work. I mean, you, you could hardly go wrong with that, that particular one because one, Carl was such an outrageous, I mean, I've never met it. As long as, you know, many years as I've been on this earth and as many crazy people I've met, I've never met anybody like Carl Danish, ever. But that just such a wonky mashup of, you know, his his bizarre sort of form of Christianity and how militant he was about it all. And then, you know, he was a guy throwing himself off cliffs, you know, and had a jovial love about him that was so infectious and just that whole thing was just like a hallucination it happened to me when I was quite young too. So, you know, it made a big impression. And, and then again, that was the father of base jumping. And that was the first time big time adventure sports American, at least with Americans involved had been featured on network television, primetime ne network television. So it was a lot, there was a lot of firsts involved in that thing. And uh, so it was a seminal event in my life. So it seemed, you know, it was an easy thing to pick up as a story, but it was hell, it was hell to try to write it because there's so many different elements involved in the thing and it spanned and I had to go back there 20 years after the fact and or more than that, you know, all of that stuff. So I didn't, I didn't go into that book wanting to, to do things that were that narrative wise were that ambitious, but there just wasn't any other way to do it. You know, if I wanted to actually tell that story. It involved all of those things, and there are a million ways to go wrong when you're doing those. You know, I always really enjoy reading uh, authors that I love in a chronological chronological order, so I can see their, how they evolve, how their craft evolves. You know, if you look at like, um, you know, Faulkner or someone, or um, you know, person like uh, Cormac McCarthy. Man, his stuff from the early days to where he ended up with the road is like massive. It's a massive jump uh, or just like a massive evolution in terms of how he refines his prose. And it and I see these patterns of, you know, great writers simplifying down, paring down to the essential. By the end, Cormac McCarthy's not even using punctuation, you know, <laughs> um, so <laughs> I mean, I mean that's an exaggeration, but you get my point. That um, it's it does seem to be with age, uh, a lot of this stuff just becomes simpler and simpler. There's less need for the adornment. I think about that a lot, and I tr I try to use that as a north star for the my own writing. Where you know, it's like, do I really need all of this stuff? And it's always the answer is almost always, you know, no, I don't. And so I appreciated coming to uh, this book and seeing your work you know, being so familiar with everything that you've written, you know, over the years and just discovering that, that evolution and that maturity of your voice into, toward this direction, toward this North star of just paring down to the, the bare bones and, and getting to the, 
the heart of what's true because you 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 know the tr- you don't need to dress the truth up it can stand by itself and I, and I think you achieve that with this this book it's interesting as far as see I oddly enough I've I've I love doing the same thing which is a, chrono- a chronological review of people it's interesting to see like in music or in art or whatever and stories it's interesting to see where somebody began and where they ended up and it's tragic in a lot of a lot of cases to see where somebody had phenomenal promise and did phenomenal work and they and they they nose you know they they just went way down and a perfect example of that one of my favorites is Truman Capote alcoholism killed him like when he was when he was writing stories like a christmas carol or christmas story and you know breakfast at tiffany's i mean you're not getting better American prose than that. I mean, it's so spot on with such interesting, real characters. And then you, you, you basically, you know, a lot of it happened. The same thing happened to Twain. If you look at the last part of, you know, last of his stuff, he was snarky and bitter and life had crushed him. And his stuff was just basically a gussied up rant, you know, compared to you know, roughing it or, you know, his earlier stuff. So, you know, it can go both ways. You're fortunate if you can hold a, an upward trajectory, but you have to be that you're going to have to have to keep trying to, you know, get as true as you can and real as you can with your own life. Cause how many times have we seen writers disappear into a bottle and, you know, what dribbles out of them towards the end of the career is just not something anybody wants. And they're delusional. This is this isn't better stuff. Yeah, Hunter Thompson is an example of that for me. And uh, you know, I think there's a new book coming out that kind of traces his downward spiral. Perfect. That's yeah. a perfect example of it. Yeah, and you know, I guess just to bring this back to the climbing world, I've noticed kind of this like theme among a lot of stone masters or a lot of people of of your time and your peers, where a lot of them do kind of spiral down into alcoholism or excess or just end up kind of so attached to this dirtbag lifestyle that they they end up you know homeless and without any anyone by their side at the at the end of the day yeah I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on 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 your generation and what that maybe syndrome is that if that's an even accurate characterization I, I'm not sure if you'd agree with that but no, I, I do agree with that because I've seen a lot of people from my generation and from all from all generations is that basically there's I think there's two ways that people end up looking at themselves. One is as a as a fixed external object who reached a high point in their climbing career and they remained that person, and so you know until they die, and and of course without their physical prowess, it's going to be a, you know, that was the Indian summer of their life and it's going to be all downhill from there and they make no effort to do anything about it. The other mindset is a growth mindset. And that is, as long as I work diligently at it, my potential is boundless until I stop trying. But it's going to require effort and I'm going to keep having to go towards what seemed to be valuable and true you know, personally, humanly, you know, spiritually, how, however you want to go. And if you don't do that, you're going to be a flying amber, man. You're going to be stuck 
and you can't stay still in life. You're either going to have to keep charging. You can't just sit down or you're going to end up exactly in this, in the position that Andrew just described, which is destitute, down and out, bitter, used up. You basically shut your life down, you know, once you're, once you couldn't climb 513 again or whatever it is. That was just a phase. Now, who says that that's, that's as good as you're ever going to get, as clear as you're, you know, or happy as you're ever going to get or alive as you're ever going to get? You know, it's a big spike because it's, you know, we have a lot of, there's a lot of adrenaline and dopamine and thrills and what have you attached to that part. But, it, you know, there's other ways to get it other than that. But that that takes an effort. You know, and you have to believe that there's, that you're, you're, you have boundless potential. It might not be in the same thing. I, I'm not going to climb like I did when I was 25, but I can certainly do other things in ways I could never imagine doing when I was 25, like this book. But if you don't have other things out there that you're, that you, that you can go after with the same gusto that you went after climb to climb Yosemite Big Walls or wherever, Trump across Borneo, then yeah, you're going to, you're going to end up moldering on the roadside. You're not going to get any pity because nobody's got any time for it. Everybody inherently knows, well, you just give up on the thing. You know, or try to ride your coattails or do. No, man, you, this life is hard. You have to keep trying. You know, it's an effort. Every day you get up and you go, okay, how can I, how can I move along here? And, and that, without that, without exactly what Andrew was saying, Everything he's looking at, how can I pair this back? How can I make it better? How can, if that exploration of how can I stretch myself here towards something finer, truer, better, if that doesn't become your overriding drive, then in your own way, no matter how much money you have, you'll still end up destitute. I think you just have to keep trying to your last breath. You know, and that's where the that's where the the freedom is. I mean, that's a that makes it really interesting every day to get up and go. Okay, where am I going today that I've never been before? On today's final bit, international superstar Hazel Finley shows us how to make proper tea. And don't let that soft English voice fool you. Hazel is known worldwide for her ability to put the hammer down on hard and scary trad. And of course, those hair-raising ascents are always followed by a relaxing cuppa. Hey everyone, this is Hazel Findlay and today I'll be doing a public service announcement on how to make a proper brew, a good cup of tea, the cup of tea that you might want to drink after a hard day at work or, you know, every morning after you wake up. Apparently there are people in the world who don't know how to make a good cup of tea. Perhaps they're people who don't actually drink tea and they just make it for their friends and they get it wrong. No one wants to be the person that gets it wrong. So that's why today we'll just be doing a little bit of a how-to. First things first, you want to get your uh, kettle, preferably electric. And you want to 
fill that up to the right amount. And you want to get it the right amount. We don't want to be boiling excess water. And we don't want to be boiling our kettle during the breaks of popular football games. We do have uh, problems with overloading the grid here in the UK with people doing that. So be mindful of when you're drinking your cups of tea here. There's the lovely sound of the kettle boiling. First step done. Second, get your tea bag. We'll just be focusing on basic tea making today, so we won't go into loose leaf tea or anything like that for now. One thing I will say about tea bags, make sure they don't have plastic in them. Most of them do. Add the tea bag to the mug. Get your just recently boiled water from the kettle and add that to the mug. It's the order of things really that's the most important part here. If you need to take notes, take notes because we want to make sure that we get this right. So once the water is added to the tea bag in the mug, then we'll get a spoon and we'll stir it around, letting that tea infuse into the water. And how long you leave that in for really depends on the strength of tea that you're looking for. So there is some trial and error in this process of tea making. You can't get it right first time, so, you know, don't beat yourself up if you do get it wrong. Then once, you know, you've, you've had it in for a certain amount of time, there's no set time, so you just have to guess at first. Then you take your tea bag out and you add your milk. I'm not going to go into types of milk today because it's a bit controversial. I personally use oat milk. Then we'll add the, the milk to the tea. And again, there's no set amount of milk, but what you're looking for is the coloration that you like to have based on the strength of tea that you like. What you don't want to do is rush the brewing process, add the milk and find your tea's too weak. So that's why we might Make, make sure we're patient with the brewing process. Some people leave their tea bag in as they're adding their milk to try to get the right coloration. But remember, as soon as you add that milk, that water temperature has dropped. And therefore, your tea bag is not going to be brewing very well in that cooled temperature because your milk's cold. You don't want to be adding hot milk to your tea, though. Just, yeah, just don't. So, yeah. That's it, really. It's complex, and it's, it's not really a science. It's more of an art. But I believe in you, and I think you can get it right. And, yeah, practice makes perfect. So I hope you've got a good cup of tea in front of you right now, and you can enjoy it. And I wish you all the best. You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Kalous, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. And also, please support our show. 
Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. 